Welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. I want to call your attention to the word of the Lord. We're going to be in places throughout Ecclesiastes 5, 6, and 7. And I will give you the prompt, the cue when we get there. We're going to get to the scriptures in just a moment. But we continue in our series today in a subject that I simply want to entitle The Art of Contentment. Is it true that his grace is sufficient for you? I mean, is it really? I will say that it is all the time, but how many times will I seek sufficiency in other disappointing places? Today, I just want to talk for a moment about the art of contentment. And we have children worshiping with us, and so I want to give you children a definition to work with. We're going to get to the definition in just a few moments because it's a big word, contentment. And some of you are taking notes and, and, and preparing to understand as, as Robin has given you some tools. I want to give you a very simple understanding of what it means to be content. Now, it's a bigger definition than this, but I think I want to give you some handlebars to hang on to. So children, to be content means to be okay with what you have to be okay with what you have. We're gonna get into a deeper meaning of that, but listen, it's Saturday morning and you go downstairs or you go into the kitchen and you're hoping that mom or dad has made pancakes because Saturday morning is great for blueberry pancakes, but you see that they've made waffles and you're like, I wanted pancakes, but waffles are good enough. I'm okay with waffles today. That's contentment, to be okay with what you have. But the trouble is, now I'm talking to all of us, we live in a world of discontentment. We live in a world of pancakes, and we can't seem to get to it. All we can get is the waffles. Sometimes I meet people, and I promise you, some of them are in this room, and from time to time, it's the person standing right in front of you We go through life with a kind of chronic discontent with things. Never satisfied. It's never enough. And yet, in this study of the book of Ecclesiastes, this master teacher that we're following, his name is Kohelet, he says that it's predictable, you know, because we order our lives in such a way as to chase after meaning, and at the end of each chase, we typically come up with disappointment, and we're never content with what we find. It's as if we're chasing the wind, he says. It's like we're grasping for smoke, and, and the vapor slips through our fingers. The word he uses is chevel. But he says, even if you have chased a hundred different sources of satisfaction and have come up discontent. There is a way to truly be content in this world. 
But before we actually talk about what he says to us about how to find true contentment, it's important that we talk about two or three things. First, I need to talk to you about the paradox of muchness. Can we talk about the paradox of muchness? But then we're gonna talk about the joy of enoughness. And then finally, we're gonna talk about the secret to the whole thing. The paradox of muchness, the joy of enoughness, and the secret to the whole thing. First, the paradox of muchness. You know we believe that more is better. I mean, you can't have too much of a good thing. We know that that's not true, but I live by that mantra. I mean, that's why I can't have an Oreo cookie because I don't have an Oreo cookie, I have a tray of Oreo cookies. I mean, if I get an Oreo cookie tray in front of me and it's sermon prep day and I've got an icy cold frosted mug that I've pulled out of my freezer filled with milk and I take my fork, by the way, this is my style, I take a fork and I put it in the white so I can dip the whole thing in. But when I finish and look up and the tray is empty, I have to call the doctor because something has gone wrong. You can have too much of a good thing. That's why I can't make a pack of, of, of chewing gum last more than two or three days because if it was good and it lost its flavor, well, then here's another one. Put it right back in. Too much of a good thing. But I want to talk to you about the paradox of muchness. Because Kohelet has these words to say in chapter five, beginning in verse 10. Whoever loves money must or never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is chevel, vapor, smoke, like chasing the wind. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And, and, and what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? See, the sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much, but, but as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or, or wealth lost through some misfortune so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb and everyone comes as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Do you know what those three words really mean? With great frustration, affliction, and anger, that's Kohelet's way of saying discontentment. What he's saying is that you, you can work your whole life and build a life that you're proud of, and, but the problem is, the, the paradox of muchness is, the more you have, the greater the responsibility you have to care for what you have. 
The more you have, the greater responsibility you have to care for what you have, to take care of it, to keep it up, to maintain it, to steward it. And at the end of the day, the more you have, it's possible to be so depleted that you end up not as content as you thought you would be. Can I hear an amen anywhere? Yeah, yeah. So the trouble, and I love how he puts it in verse 12. Verse 12, he says it this way. He goes, the sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or, or, or much, because if you have a job where you don't own much, but you work hard, but let's say you have a 30-minute lunch break and two 15-minute, I would say smoke breaks, but say, what do they call them now? Just 15-minute breaks. Well, then you're gonna sleep well at night because although you work hard, you don't have the responsibility as others, as the verse continues. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. Can I give you an example, just a low-level example of what this means? It's a silly example, but I think you might be able to connect. So back during COVID, we, we took on the project of overhauling parts of our house, and one of the things that we did in the backyard was I put in this, or let me, I had put in this amazing feature that I love. It, it's a, a gorgeous brick stone wall with a fireplace and a water feature. It's a big fountain. It's more like a little river. Uh, I've preached a sermon from it. You may have seen it. And, and for me, it's my favorite space on earth. It, I mean, I sit back there and listen to the babbling brook, the falling of water, and I pray and I contemplate, I think, I refresh, and it's awesome. We built it into the hills so that it's under this canopy of trees, like my own little Garden of Eden, right? But the trouble with the Garden of Eden is that it has troublesome trees. And those trees are gonna do what the trees do, which is shed the leaves and pine needles. And so every few months, even though this spot that I love, it, it requires every two or three months, I have to drain the pond at the bottom, I'm up to my knees in muck, and I'm, I'm pulling out mud and muck and mire and leaves and pine needles and dead frogs and all the things that you accumulate. And, and I'm taking apart, just a couple of months ago, this wall to get to the filter, to unclog it, and I'm saying to myself, is this even worth it? And then with this 100 degree heat that we're having, it evaporates, I gotta fill it up with more water. Now Laura's gonna be mad about the water bill. The more you have, the greater responsibility you have to care for what you have. And Kohelet says, this is the paradox of muchness. Verse 13, he goes even further, if that's not far enough. He said, I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or, or, or wealth through some misfortune lost, so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. What he's saying is you can work and work and work and honest work and integrity in your work and at the end of the day, you have something to show for it and yet you could be so exhausted you can't enjoy it. Or you could lose it. You could work your whole life to build up something to pass on and recession could hit. Or there's a tragedy, a death, a fire, a loss, a divorce, and now you have half of what you had or maybe none of it at all. And Kohelet says this is the paradox of muchness. This is why he says in verse 17, Sometimes you go all through the night and you eat your food in the dark. Verse 17 says it this way. 
All their days they eat in the darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger because of the paradox of muchness. Because we seek satisfaction and contentment from external sources, and as long as you seek a soul satisfaction from a source that is not meant for the soul, you will continue to be disappointed. But Kohelet says there is an alternative. There's another way to avoid the paradox of muchness and it is the joy of enoughness. Enoughness. How much is enough? How much is enough? Kohelet continues, uh, in fact, in verse, I wanna go back for just one moment though. Let's go back to chapter six, verse one. Uh, Gene, you're so good at catching up with me. Verse one says, I've seen another evil under the sun and it weighs heavily on humankind. God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honor so that they lack nothing their hearts desire, but God does not give them the ability to enjoy them and so strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless a grievous evil. You know what he's saying? He's saying, you know what's really horrible? It is to actually be in close proximity to good things, like to be surrounded by goodness and and access and yet not be able to experience them. One teacher said, imagine for example, if there were say, I don't know, a nation with more wealth and power and influence and technology and luxury and access than any other people in the history of civilization. And what if in that people, in that nation, there were more people stressed out, burned out, exhausted, angry with each other and on the brink of absolute despair so that they turn on each other and almost devour each other. I mean, imagine if it's possible that such nation and experience exists. Hevel. And this is part of what is bankrupt in our American dream because we believe if you just work hard enough, you'll have everything you need and want and hope for. It's the pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But at the end of that pursuit, Kohelet prophesies across the ages to us, it will still not be enough. So you want to know about the joy of enoughness? Well, we read about it in chapter five, verse 18. This is what he says. This is what I've observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, uh, to, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. He's saying if you're able to build and experience wealth and goodness and prosperity and can access and enjoy it, he said, you probably ought to enjoy it because this is a gift, a grace from God. But to truly understand what he's up to in calling us to true contentment is found in one of the words that I just read. It's it's tucked away in the Hebrew. There's a phrase there. It's proper as it says. 
for a person to eat, drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor. Now that phrase, to find satisfaction, in Hebrew looks like this. It means, it's pronounced wilurot. Wilurot says to be satisfied or enjoy. But that word that seems to mean to be satisfied or to enjoy has a root word in wilurot. The root word is ra'ah. Ra'ah means to see. Contentment has something to do with how we choose to see our lives. It choose to see our lives. The word that's used for true satisfaction, according to Kohelet, is that your secret is in learning to see your life. Jesus put it this way. Jesus said, the eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great the darkness. See, contentment is about fixing the lens through which you see your life. No wonder Kohelet said those who keep chasing after the wind will eat in darkness, in frustration, affliction, and anger, in darkness because they have not learned to see what they have as enough. Do you know anybody for whom nothing is enough? Their life is not enough, their job is not enough, the income they get from their job, not enough, the house that they're in is not enough, the car, and then even their relationships, their spouse is not enough, they just don't talk to me like I want them to talk to me, they don't show affection to me like they show, they need to show affection, they don't do anything, and, and I'm married to a deadbeat, and they don't, they're not enough. The kids are not enough, the kids, they won't perform, they, they're better than this, they won't achieve like I had hoped, you are better than this, and there's nothing in their minds to see their kids as enough, and then their church is not enough, the church is not doing enough, and then their work and, and, and the world, the government, nothing is enough, because the eye has not been fixed to see what satisfies the soul, see. Can I ask you to do something here in worship right where you are? Can I ask you to take inventory on yourself? What part of your life do you believe is not enough? Is it in what you're doing? Is it in who you're with? Is it in where you thought you'd be at this stage in your life? Where is it that you need to fix the way you see enough. Can I tell you where one place was that I learned to see life differently, to see the joy of enoughness? Many years ago, Laura and I went to Kenya and Uganda. We were there during seminary and we spent a few weeks there in in Kenya especially. And we spent some time in the city, in Nairobi. Spent some time in the bush with the Maasai. It's an incredible experience. But then one of the most special moments was a time that we spent in a rural homestay. We showed up with our missionary, unannounced, <laughs> to this woman's house. Her name was Kanzlada. She didn't know we were coming, and here were five white Americans who 
are needing a place to stay and some food to eat. And her response I'll never forget. When she was told in Swahili that we need a place to stay, she folded her hands and with the grace and dignity of royalty, it is an honor that you are in my house. We shall have tea. And with the hospitality that I've seen nowhere better than in Africa, she went to serving, which meant we sit still and she gathers the wood and builds a fire to boil the water, to cook the tea. And we saw her with a methodical intentionality, with a deliberate love, unclasp a little shelf where she pulled out just a few teacups and untoweled a loaf of bread that she had already made. Bread, butter, tea. About an hour later, she gathered in front of us and said, we shall now pray. Dear Lord, Thank you for this meal, for bread, for tea. Amen. And it was delicious. After the meal, we went into the town and we met people and interacted with people and it was an amazing experience, but we went to the butcher where a half a cow was laid out before us and she placed her order in Swahili and with a butcher knife, whack, She bought, with probably a month's worth of income, just a few pieces of grizzly meat, and home we went. Her home was made of mud, but her home was the richest of all because it had a piece of tin on the roof. And she boiled the meat, and we had the meal. And and we were excited because we had brought a bag from home of all these toys that we were going to give the children of the village. And in that room that night, tight, no bigger, barely, than the, the front of the stage were 20 to 25 beautiful Kenyan children. Half of them butt naked, you know, that's not very pastoral. Half of them scantily clad pressed in to see, to have conversation, and we brought out after dinner, you remember those old magic erase pads where you write on it with a little red plastic pen and then you make the thing, you draw the picture and then you lift the little film, remember? And it erases. Well, they had never seen it, they had gathered around, faces crowded in cheek to cheek, and and I, I drew this face and they were leaning in to see what would happen, and then one, two, three, it erased, and they burst into laughter and giddiness and joy. There was great joy in that room, and then they began to take turns doing it themselves, and we thought, well, if you like that, oh, just wait. And we brought all kinds of plastic things and cute things and noisy things and we we pulled out bubbles and we blew bubbles and we popped bubbles and grabbed bubbles and ate bubbles and had a great time. Oh, you like bubbles, just wait. Just wait till you see this. And we brought out another thing made of plastic and another thing that we thought they would love until we realized something that was happening. Every time we pulled out a new thing, they had already gone back to the magic erase pad. And they were fixed upon it because they gathered their sweet faces around it and the oldest girl, about eight years old, was methodically writing down the names of every child in the room. One 
perfectly aligned column, another perfectly aligned column, everybody's name because there's room for everybody in this kind of fun. And at the very end when the last child's name was there and everybody was included, there was anticipation, anticipation as she teased them. And then one, two, three, erased it and the place erupted in laughter and giddiness in the joy of enoughness. Enoughness. And those master teachers, the children, showed me the difference between the paradox of muchness and the joy of enoughness. Like the man who was very successful in his work, he had built an empire, and at the end of his days, he was exhausted, he was completely wiped out, and his pastor friend says, you need to go down to the monastery and spend some time with the brothers, they will help you find your way. He went to the monastery, and one of the monks took him to a very simple cell in which he would spend his time, a simple bed, and the brother said to him, we hope that your stay here is a blessed one. If you need anything, Let us know, and we'll show you how to live without it. (laughs) The joy of enoughness. Contentment comes when we realize how to look at what we have in front of us and to see that what we have is enough. But you're like, well, okay, Sean, but what if it's not? I mean, really, what if literally it is not, and, and I, I'm in a dead-end job, and then what if it's not enough money to pay for the things I need to pay? I got the kids going to school. What if literally I'm in a situation that is clearly not enough? That leads us to the secret to the whole thing. The secret to the whole thing. So in chapter seven of Ecclesiastes, he has these words to say, consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. The God who is the source of your satisfaction and joy during times that are good is the same God and the same source of satisfaction and contentment when times are bad. This is Southern Gospel Sunday, and I don't know, Monty, I didn't rehearse this with you, but did you, you remember the McCameys? McCamey family was a Southern Gospel group, and they had a very popular song. The God of the mountain is still God where? in the valley. The God of the good times is still God of the bad times. It's in how we fix our eyes to see that God and especially when times are not good that we can be most content and no one knows this better than the Apostle Paul. At the end of his life, he had been chased down, beaten, scourged. He had been whipped, stoned, thrown off a cliff, and now he's in a Roman prison cell awaiting execution. They drop him through this little hole into this open, cavernous, dank, wet prison cell, and he knows it's over. So he writes a letter to a church in Philippi about how to get along with each other, about how to make room in the pew for the other. 
And while he's at it, he says, by the way, I've learned something about contentment. This is what he says. He goes, I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty and of being in need. And you know what the secret is? He's building it up. I've learned this. I'm at the end of my life, and I know the secret. It's interesting that you have to learn a secret. And he says, I've learned it. And he says, this is what it is. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Christ and Christ alone. After all of the places where he has sought satisfaction and contentment in external sources, he's come up dry. But the secret, which is interesting that he says you have to learn it the hard way, you have to earn some scar tissue for having been disappointed for chasing external satisfaction in external sources, he says, I have found it in an internal enoughness, and his name is Jesus Christ. He is my strength, which means I can endure any circumstance, good or bad, plenty or lacking, because he is the steady balance in my ship. He is the ballast that keeps me afloat. And this is what led St. Augustine in his famous prayer to say, I've gone to everywhere and I've searched my desires, I've tried to pursue them in any direction that would satisfy and keep me content, and this is my prayer. My heart is restless, O Lord, until it finds its rest in thee. Until it finds its rest in thee. My sisters and my brothers, take it from someone who knows. I know the exhaustion of chasing down satisfaction and contentment and joy in places that predictably disappoint. But I also know this, Paul was telling the truth. I have found a friend in Jesus who has never disappointed. If you're looking to fix your eyes on a source of enoughness that will take you from this day until your final day, it is Christ. Christ. 